Hello everyone and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gas, and not with me as usual is my co-host Ben, because he's suffering under the demons of Ofsted and other such things which kept him at bay. But fear not, you've not got an hour of me talking to myself, even though I would consider that the only guaranteed way to get intelligent conversation. I have brought with me two more guests, so you don't have to listen to a monologue, although if you want to patron extra for that, please put some money in the coffers and I'll do that for you, not a problem. But first of all, we have uh, fan favourite and returning guests, the hands behind Handiwork Games, Mr John Hudson. Hi, yeah, thanks for inviting me back on. Lovely to be back, thanks for inviting us, lots to talk about. So for the first time, we have someone who's probably best known as a storied academic, but also dabbled his toes in game design. Uh, he's the creator behind such games as Aesthetic, Cold City and Hot War, Mr. Malcolm Craig. How's it going, Malcolm? Hello, thank you very much for, for having me on. Yeah, it's kind of coming back after my uh, wilderness years of not being involved in gaming at all. I find my, my life has come full circle now as a professional historian. I'm actually researching role-playing games. Who would have guessed such a thing would happen? But yes, very, very nice to be here and be with you and, and Johnny talking about stuff. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, we seem to be in, in the place now with the hobby where the perennial conversation of a, is the hobby dying is finally like laid to rest and people shut up about it. And it's in read health, which is good. So uh, you, you've mentioned there, like going away and coming back again. I, I'll launch it. This might be a complicated question, so feel free to rationalise it if you need to. But one of the first games uh, you made was A-State which you can possibly tell people about. And that was back in the, the old days when you had to kind of make loads of books, go through the distributor model, put them out into game shops, post them by hand to people, stuff like that. So it's quite a, a troublesome way of getting your game out to people. And recently, I know through, through John, you've managed to sort of re- revisit and, and come looking at the new golden future you've got where you have things like Kickstarter or pre-orders and kind of print how many books you need and, and delivery fulfillment's a lot easier. So can you perhaps reflect on what it was like originally during Airstate and what it's been like to come back to it after a few years? Yeah, it's been been interesting. I mean, it started, I mean, Paul and I were kind of, it was that era where we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we didn't have the faintest idea. We, I mean, we took some advice, you know, Dave Allsop of Nightfall Games. And like, you know, James Wallace, you know, then of, of Hogshead uh, were very generous with the advice, but we were still kind of in this traditional, you need to print at least 1500 copies, you know, blah, 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 all this, this kind of thing. And that was changing as we went through it. And, you know, we lost a lot of money through one of our, you know, the fulfillment house we were with running off with thousands of dollars of sales uh, that we'd made and all, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, that was a, an interesting period because we, we didn't know what we're doing and then we had to learn very, 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 very quickly what we were doing. And I think, you know, kind of distribution and kind of production of games is in something of a an easier place now. But I think Johnny can speak to this more than I can. It's it's still it's still as many of the challenges remain there. Right. But it's, it's great to be back kind of you know, doing it, being able to, I mean, in terms of writing of the game, I had this very traditional gaming mindset, oh, you just, system doesn't matter, da-da-da-da, all that kind hmm. of stuff. And the, I think the, the second edition of the game is is the game it always should have been, which is, which right. is nice. I think, and the, the challenges and how the landscape, of, like the production of games has changed, Johnny's probably better able to speak to to that topic than, uh, than I, ha- I am, because he's been hands-on for much longer than I have. Yeah, I thought that I'd give you the, the end as it might be, have been an easier 
journey this time round rather than the first time round. But yeah, Johnny, have you, have you got a, a kind of view on what it was like to go back to a perhaps a, a you know an, an older game? I mean, we are we are in a sort of state now where the RPC RPG has kind of got a history almost now. We can look back at different phases. I think the sort of that sort of phase we're talking about is early two thousands or something, which to me feels like about five years ago. But is uh, looking at the calendars a couple of decades ago so how did you find revisiting an old classic and reviving it for a new generation i guess it is weird how how long ago that stuff is and you realize actually sort of almost by accident there is a whole new if not two generations of gamers you know who have not encountered these things at all um because they you know it's quite a long time ago now you know best part 20 years if not well a state is 20 years isn't it malcolm 20 next year is 20 years since we launched it We'll have to do a new edition for the, for the 20th anniversary. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just think that, it, I mean, we certainly thought it would be a really good idea to to bring these things back. You know, that, that I think A-State was really, really good in, in the first edition and certainly, you know, being able to, to bring a lot of sort of system innovation and stuff to it. But in terms of, in terms of the sort of production landscape, yeah, it's kind of, there's some swings around about stuff really. Because I was laughing about the, um, sending things out by hand still doing that <laughs> um, no. uh, but but also there are of course a law we we didn't send out the the a-state kickstarter we had some help with that because the, once they go to a certain size you know it's a bit too big for us to handle but we 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 still do quite a lot i'm just finishing off our backdrops book i did this book of miniature backdrops and like, I, you know i'm sending all those out but yeah stuff like print on demand which we use sort of sporadically for different things that that's really come on leaps and bounds certainly didn't exist in the way it exists now back in in you know in Malcolm's day I was going to say in the first time around but yeah yeah I, I think because the the industry is that much bigger now than it was I think there's a lot more services it does it does come with the the sort of caveat that you have to be careful because I think there's quite a lot more sharks in the water now I mean when we were just running our last Kickstarter, I was bombarded with people trying to make massive promises and trying to get money out of me for promotional services, which we just don't use. Yeah. We, you know, I see a sort of bit of a different route. Yeah. I, I do get quite a lot of stuff myself about, hello, you know, smart party. We've mm -hmm. heard about your insert podcast here about insert games tag here. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, just send us this money now. You know, <laughs> I was wondering actually the other day how many of those are actually legitimate, or oh, I think I think a lot of them are sort of uh, they'll do their best sort of thing, but they're just a guy, you know, yeah. that are trying to get your money to share it on Instagram, what have you. And you're like, eh, maybe, maybe not. But it's the same, and you know, academia has a similar thing, like you know, because I organise quite a few kind of big UK American history conferences, I still get emails from like parasitic you know, publishers hmm. not not really the legitimate presses who are kind of like you know oh would you like to publish your conference proceedings with us it will only cost you and you're like mm. and now these same parasites have found role playing games yes yeah that's yeah it's a problem problem with success isn't it <laughs> yeah that's there's a funny thing where you could now run a role playing games publisher between sort of crowdfunding print on demand fiverr all these different services that now exist and will cater to that. You could run a role-playing games company without any skills at all necessary to do that and just mm. farm it all out, which people are doing. You know, there's quite a lot of that about. I'm not quite sure how you actually make a sustainable business doing that if you're just farming everything out. 
and and certainly we prefer to be you know hence the name handiwork was always about we are the people that make the games you know if you're talking to someone from handiwork games you are talking to someone who made the game it was always the idea to keep it quite small and and sort of artisanal you know was always the idea um but you could just go totally the opposite way and be a i don't know what you would be a sort of shell company and i think there's dangers in that i think it it, it allows people to do things that perhaps they don't really have a future in business terms because they're paying for absolutely every single service um, to a lot of smiling tigers who are like, oh, yes, you're very clever to go with us kind of thing. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well, I hesitate to ask because I know with your fulfillment of the, the latest Kickstarter, uh, the Bebo stuff, mm. you, you did have some tribulations. Is that something we can touch upon and maybe you can give us a, yeah, a highlight? Sure. And then we can, they can rise from the ashes after that with more positive yeah. stuff afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah, this was... I'm trying to think now when... I've, I've black, black, blanked out most of it now. Um, now we're through it. Yeah, we had uh, our previously named The Trials of the Twin Seas, um, all of the American rewards, plus a load of stock we were piggybacking on the shipment to, you know, very smartly save money. Um, that was all stolen at a sort of shipment level. So the whole lot, it was about just under £25,000 worth of stock went missing. We had a lot of promises it was going to be found and it'd be tracked down. And they sort of slowly, cutting a long story short, we were pursuing it for a very long time. And finally, we found our stock on eBay being sold uh, by a, a bunch of people who bought it at auction from a kind of clearinghouse place after it had been. Right. We don't, We yeah, it's still being investigated. I, I well, I, I'm a little bit cynical that we will, that we would ever see any of it again i didn't think we would but actually thanks to and hey naming the names of people who've been really good on this mark rapson who's a partner in gms logistics and then kite and proctor in america they actually tracked down a load of a load of the books and we got a bunch of them back from some actually very kind ebay sellers who were like oh my god you know i don't want to sell stolen goods and they shipped them back to us which was amazing not anything like I mean, probably not double-digit percentage of what we've lost, but I thought it was lovely that they bothered and didn't just go, yeah. well, I bought them fair and square. Sorry, sucks to be you. They weren't like that. So that was good. And that that's helped us out a bit. But yeah, yeah that, that's that been a trying time, to say the least, because oh, me being me, I just I think sometimes I despair a little bit that some Kickstarter creators roll over a bit too quick when things get difficult. I yeah. mean, people have different toler- tolerances for this kind of level of pain. Um, but we just knuckled down, all worked really, really hard, raised the money to replace all the all the rewards and sent them all out from the UK. We've still got a few, a bunch of parcels came back the other day, really frustratingly from America. So I need to resend those again. Um, but we're there now pretty much. We are like 99% sent and, and you know, our American backers now have their books, which was just, a, I've said this elsewhere, but it was just a matter of honour, really, that we promised people books and they will get books, you know, if it kills us doing it, which it nearly did. Well, I, that's that's one of the things, though. That, I mean, I'm sort of slightly, you know, at a remove. I'm not a salaried employee of Handiwork Games like, you know, Johnny or Paul. And it's sitting on the outside of this, watching some unnamed individual somewhere ruining the business and the careers mm-hmm. and the livelihoods of you of good friends who've got mortgages to pay and all these kind of things and you know that it was to watch from the semi outside was it was horrible you know the mm. 
because uh, I've, I've known Johnny, I mean, I've known Paul since forever, I've known Johnny for, you know, many, God, God knows how long now, and it's it's horrible to see that being done. And one of one of the I think the great things was seeing the responses of the overwhelming majority of handiwork customers and backers being incredibly supportive when when this story came out and when you know, Johnny was able to reveal what happened. Mm. Yeah, I mean it just it just goes to show you know it's that knife edge. There's a there's a funny sort of layered up thing as well that was particularly painful in business terms because it meant we couldn't launch trials of the twin seas in america or really anywhere because if the backers haven't got it you can't make a big fuss and song about oh hey there's this new book which some of the backers don't have yet but you know hey that's not our fault that's not ever the way we're gonna play it so that sort of never really launched uh and you know and it's kind of taken the best part of a year to to fix all that and then also we were competing. We didn't have any stock in America, except we did. But somebody else was selling it at a discounted price. And you're like, oh my God, we're now competing with our own stock and we don't have anything. We don't have product there to sort of match it. You know, because I would consider doing some crazy stuff. Like I would consider just matching the prices of the eBay sellers if we had stock to do it. You know, mm. I'd undercut them just to spite, well, not to spite them actually. It's not their fault. They bought it in good faith. But we just didn't really have much to fight with, you know. Yeah, but it'll, I mean, you know, we'll get there. That that was one of the things that sort of upset me because I, I get this. I'm sort of a little bit like you about stuff is about matters of honor and wanting to put things right and not letting people get away with it. But it, yeah. following your story, there's a little bit when you're going, and then this happened, so we spoke to the insurance, but they said uh, we're not doing anything about it. Or there's lots of like stages where it things like you expect that something will be done, and then yeah, there isn't anything, and you're like, well, can, can I not speak to someone? Yeah, you, you, you think you've got like you like sort of my consumer rights, and then you yeah. realize you're not a consumer. It's business to business. Yeah, it, it, the law is completely different, and it's almost yeah, yeah. We 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 were not very happy with the insurance company. Oh, a lot of very clever people have gone to us. Oh, but wasn't it insured? Yeah, yes, yeah. obviously. <laughs> uh, but the insurance you know, the insurance company's job in this situation is to not pay us to, to try not to pay you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and made us a ridiculous low ball offer we immediately you know just turned down it was like pennies on the pound and and they're a bit like oh well you know sucks to be you it's but it's one of when someone says was it not insured it's almost one of those ah you've never dealt with an insurance company have you <laughs> and least of all in a business yeah. sense yeah well let's move on for that i mean like i think that is a point of you sort of mentioned handiwork games being hand the hand manufactured all ethos and i think that really shines through and this story does and like this, a recent Kickstarter that's delivered after about thirteen years. I think it is one of the the sort of Wild West one, which is just mm. it's night and day if you compare someone like that who's constantly making excuses and not delivering, it, uh, and then someone like your company. So, uh, fingers crossed, our, our wide audience and others beyond will just want to, you know, buy more of your stuff. As a result, I was uh, delighted to hear that there's going to be a reboot or, well, is reboot the right word? I'll let, you, I'll let you two tell me. But Cold City and Hot War are going to be coming back out again. And uh, Hot War is one of my top three role-playing games of all time, I, sh- I shall say. Not just because you're on the show, Malcolm, but it just it, it is. Uh, I know myself and Scott Dorwood have we've run it, we've still been running it, even though it's been unavailable for some time. And it's been slightly embarrassing for us because we evangelize about this game running at conventions and then people say great where can i get it we go um <laughs> uh you kind of can't 
So if for nothing else, the fact that other people can now enjoy these wonderful products that are coming out. So uh, one or both of you want to give us the pitch for, do you want to do one each? One take Cold City, one Hot War, both do one, you tell me. Cold City is a game of hidden agendas, trust and monster hunting in Cold War Berlin. That There's your elevator pitch. I don't know what more you want from it. That's That's the pitch. And Hot War... Like in a very similar kind of pitch in that it's uh you know but friends enemies hidden agendas uh in the aftermath of the apocalypse so yeah they're both kind of unified by my interest in in the, the cold war both you know personally and in an academic sense because that's what I, i'm now a historian of the cold war and the nuclear age uh and i'm delighted that uh yeah in the, they're they're making a reappearance which is and maybe slightly, slightly revised in reimagined form, but I think we can talk more about, about that. But yeah, it's a delight to be able to be working on this with with Johnny and Paul, especially because I mean Paul was fifty percent at least of Estate and Cold City and Hot War and Gregor and Morgan, Johnny, you know everyone that's uh, uh, involved. Gregor Hutton, I mean you know him and Morgan are just like geniuses when it comes to the the kind of mechanical elements because I think you know. I mean, guys, you I mean, it's very kind of you to say that you really like Hot War. I think the mechanics work quite well. It's quite a good game. There are areas where they could be improved. And it's just like people like Morgan Gregor just have this, oh yeah, zip laser comes in, zip, this is what you need to do. And you're like, oh my God. You know, it's incredible. But yeah, so it's really, I mean, sure we'll talk more over the next few minutes of it, but it's delightful they're coming back. I'm really excited. And there's it it all actually directly connects into my academic work as well, which perhaps we can talk about in a moment. Yeah, well, do you want to bring that in first? Because that's kind of part of the reason for this happening, is it? <laughs> yeah. So I kind of, for the past decade or so, I've kind of worked on the history of nuclear proliferation, so the spread of nuclear weapons with a particular focus on, on the, the Middle East, depending on how you define the Middle East. And I've kind of grown extremely bored, as you do with research. And I was looking over, this, particularly over kind of like the plague period. I was kind of like, what? what I'm, I can't be bothered with myself. I'm not interested anymore. What do I want to do? And I actually was down literally in my basement. Uh, and there was the old boxes of all my games. And I've got rid of a lot of my role-playing games, but a lot I've kept a lot of the stuff. And there's stuff like Twilight 2000. And I was like, so going like, you know, there's been loads of historical work done on like movies and TV and novels and comics and everything during the Cold War and about nuclear issues. No one's really done anything but role-playing games, like tabletop, no one's done that. And then I thought, there's this brilliant emerging games histories scholarship. You know, people like Aaron Trammell, you know, John Peterson, John Wills are doing wonderful work in a whole range of different books games but like role-playing games are part of it and I was like why can't I combine my interests in like the new studying the history of the nuclear age and these games from the cold war and how they represented the idea of nuclear conflict and then there was this kind of like I was speaking to people in my department saying oh yeah I wrote these two kind of cold war games way back in the day all that kind of thing and they were like, right, are you planning on doing anything more like that? Because that could be brilliant for impact and getting research out there. So one of the reasons the, the, the new versions are coming out is aligned with my kind of research into games, but also using new editions of these games to communicate historical knowledge. 
and see that how how that impacts in the the wider gaming gaming community, which Johnny and I have already been kind of been doing with talks at, at Games Expo and the uh, the university and everything. But yeah, so it's exciting that my kind of you know previous life as a kind of like you know part time game designer uh, is kind of like really very now completely intertwined with my actual day job and academic research. I find it really fast. It's, it's, I find it incredibly exciting. Living the dream, some might say. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess one of the questions I've got so then it, it felt to me at the time when Hot War came out because it's a slightly different mechanic set than Cold City. Yeah, but it felt slightly more. It felt more refined. It felt like not a Cold City 2.0, but it felt like well, I've, I've done one game now, and now I've done a second one. You had a sort of slightly better stab at it. I think it runs slightly smoother. There's not massive differences, but I think that worked better. Uh, and have you kind of like iterated again? I mean. As I say, it's one of my top three games this whole world, but there are a couple of development opportunities that I would have if I was writing it or to, to sort of smooth a couple of bits out. So is this like a 3.0 version or is it 2.1 or something like that, would you say? I still want to maintain some kind of clear water between Cold City and Hot War because the mechanics are the same, but there are different things emphasised. So in Cold City, it's the trust element mm. of it. And in Hot War, the equivalent of that is the relationships, which are more important to that setting, whereas trust is more important in, in Cold City. And I think you're you're dead right that there are... Hot War was a refined version of Cold City. So I think the refinements that were there will be kind of like put into Cold City, but I still want to maintain that clear water. They are different settings with different emphases, but they're are going to be slightly more significant changes, perhaps in the role of the, the GM and how the GM provides opposition. Gregor has already come up with this. Like Johnny and I have this standing joke that we don't hear anything for Gregor from Gregor for three months. He just disappears. Never hear from him. And then we have a there's a games design problem, and Gregor just turns up and solves it. <laughs> and you're just like the man's a genius, you know. Because we're kind of Gandalf. Yeah, yes. Like, and yeah. and Gregor like popped by our kind of like discussion your Discord the other day. I was like, oh yeah, I've had this idea for how the GM can provide opposition in Cold City and Hot War within the same mechanical framework. It's not changing the mechanics at all. And I'm just like, I had my head in my hands. I'm like, <laughs> man's a genius. Because we were. Me, me and Malcolm were talking at the time in like some other channel or just, you know, private chat. And then it was like, here's Hutt and bursting out of the bushes with like a fistful of gold. And it absolutely <laughs> was. But he did it all the way through A-State as well, where he would disappear yeah. for ages and then come back and go, oh, we should do this. And you go, how, what? <laughs> I mean, everyone works in different ways. I mean, I've always worked by just slinging everything at it and seeing what I like you know you mm. almost listen to yourself talking or I reread my notes I have got when I'm designing games I have enormous conversations with myself in text and then I edit it back so it's really weird to you know Gregor works so differently so disciplined you know that was one of the wonderful things watching the development of the kind of the forge in the dark mechanics I mean the radical interpretation of that for the second edition of A-State was that I mean all the real intellectual heavy lifting there was done by Morg he was one, and then it, there was a when there would be a kind of naughty problem, and more and Gregor would be like kind of bounce off each other, and boom, you'd have this problem solved, you know. Right. And you know that's the kind of you know, I, you know, they, they both they both kind of did that because they have that intellectual ability to 
the two of them to see see mechanical interactions, systemic interactions in games in a way that I don't think I have. Hmm. It was only, certainly when Hot War was being developed, as you say, an improvement on Cold City, it was only through playtesting in New Zealand with Morg and with Steve Hickey and that it was only actually in play that I saw how the, the game worked, whereas I think Morgan Gregor had this this brilliant ability to visualise uh, play you know, in their heads and how the mechanics are, are going to work, something I just I just simply can't do. Yeah, I don't know if I'm on their level, but I'm that way out. If if me and Ben play a, a board game and sort of pick up a game, he'll be looking at it he's like, what's going to look cool on this board? But I can see how the mechanics are going to work and mm. crush him every time. So he has a negative experience because he's wondering why his Hulk's now dead when he thought he was going to be like in the comic books and he did this, that, and the other. But I've got the kind of metric screen of the mechanics you know, <laughs> in front of me where I can, I can see where the holes are or where the opportunities are, stuff like that. So, yeah, I kind of get where they're coming from a little bit. But uh, equally, like playing stuff out, like I say, that's the way to work out if it is actually any good or not. It's when you start getting your hands on it that you can see, get the feel for it in a certain way, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, a couple of bits about why I like hot work around... Even little things like uh, you have traits in Hot War for, for listeners that don't know, which just give you a dice. And it might be something like burned by treachery or, you know, it could be anything you can think of, really. It's a bit like Aspects in Fate. It's something that you try and get written down so it might be a positive or a negative. But if it's a negative trait, you can still add it into your dice pool. And it's that kind of, even when you've got a penalty, it doesn't it doesn't mean a, a negative play experience. You actually get more dice to roll. It's more fun. The other question I was going to ask around not like, necessarily those nitty-gritty mechanics, but kind of the GM advice that might go with it. Because back in the day, Hot War was at a time when lots of indie games were out. And I can't remember who it was, but someone mentioned to me that it is trad as fuck in that you've got, you know, dice and a GM and there's players. And there's like, you know, like there was a lot of like really out there stuff at the time, but it was still quite a traditional game. And I think one of the things that makes it work is players have got to understand that uh, bad things should happen to the characters and they shouldn't necessarily flip all the negative traits to positive ones and try and win, because if you do that, you're not really, you know, you can still play the game, but you're not going to get the most out of it. So I'm wondering, have you got more in there around different play styles, perhaps given the the game development and the way different games can be played now in terms of GM advice, or even if there is a GM and that sort of thing, you know, how do you present the game so people know how to play that specific game rather than a generic role-playing game? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things I've been looking back at. It's actually weirdly one of the first things I've been looking back at is kind of how to construct and start your game in, especially in Cold, I've started with Cold City, you know, and uh, I'm not quite on to kind of any kind of, you know, systemic kind of sorting out hot war at the moment. But yeah, the looking at the, the advice on how to structure your game, I think there needs to be, and there will be more advice in there and more kind of like structure to that about how you go about because there was always that thing what is the tone of your game you know all easy i'm trying to remember my own game now johnny have you got a copy in front i don't have a copy here. yeah i have where have we got yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. oh there we go yeah brilliant have a little look. Yeah. But the, for listeners at home we're both holding up our copies of our and i i've not of course um the the tone of the game and all that kind of thing uh but i think adding to that and giving the gm more support from that point of view of how to implement that in the game, rather than just saying, okay, we're influenced by 
noir. Let's so we're the, the our touchstones for this game are Third Man and Kiss Me Deadly. Okay, how do we actually implement that in game? What does that mean? <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah. So I think something like, and again, this is this is where I will kind of like go to Morgan Gregor. I have these ideas. They'll disappear for three months and then come back and go, this is how you implement it. Uh, so all the good ideas will be there. It's not mine. But how to kind of like, you know, do GMs and players get something for that? I'm still noodling, but I don't want to lose what, what I really like about the games. I don't want mm. to turn them into someone else's game. No. So I think that's this is going to be part of the ongoing kind of conversation that we're all having. I mean, you know, Johnny is always has you know has some great ideas about design. You can see that in like Silver Road and Mask Witches, which is a game that terrifies me more than any other role playing game ever. The, so I think there's going to be an ongoing conversation between all of us about how we how we implement that side of it alongside all the other ways we're going to try and implement different things like historical understanding in a light touch way and all that kind of thing. Lovely. Well, t- talking of uh, of Johnny and, and design work and stuff like that, one of the good things about um, Hot War, particularly remember, it's probably Cold City if I flick through it, is uh, a lot of the game setting was presented through physical artifacts. So it'd be pictures of posters on walls or documents that are handed out to agents or things like that. So what do you think about that kind of thing? Certainly for something that's like a pseudo-historical kind of game, like having... Uh, the graphic design and art built in with the game itself and like being being a, a function of learning the game and giving it out to the players as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really important that certainly two games to, to continue that that trend. And I mean, we've spoken a lot about this. I mean, Malcolm, you've been really talking a lot about maps and the way maps convey information and going beyond, you know, using the way maps work beyond just, maps if you know what i mean you know you get maps can represent a lot of different things and we've spoken a lot about that and yeah you know you know us we're very we're very into our sort of visual presentation of things so there'll be no there'll be no let up there you know um that'll that'll be intensified if anything um which yeah great really looking forward to it we've been looking at posters and things this week hey you've been collecting stuff and paul's been getting involved and all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah, no, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I've been looking at kind of like the kind of even you know down to the level, which is I mean, Paul's brilliant and amazing graphic designer. I mean, Johnny is you know, huge industry figure. Yeah. Uh, and we've been looking at the kind of typography of how like how poster what posters or adverts in 1950s Berlin looked like. And as Johnny pointed out, I'm really I use them in uh, undergraduate teaching a lot. The idea of persuasive cartography. So the idea of maps that are intended to persuade you of a particular, you know, viewpoint used for you know propaganda or advertising or maybe kind of more subtle kind of ways. My office wall that facing my desk is four giant persuasive maps from from different from the Cold War period, and I, I'm I'm really keen. I think Paul and Paul and Johnny are are both on board with this of using cartography in different ways in both games. Uh, to you know, impart information, but also give a sense of the the settings themselves. Because that's something. I mean, back in the day, Paul and I were really super keen on making telling the story of the settings through artifacts. You know, within the game, and one of my favourite things ever from from Hot War, and I can't remember whether it was in one of the transmissions or in the game itself, was the poster for a, a public lecture. Uh, by government minister John Profumo giving a lecture on public mo- the importance of public morals. And, you know, <laughs> it was one of those things that we were kind of like, hey, hey, hey. but actually, I mean, 
that's actually important to the you know the setting because oh yeah the perfumo affair never happened in this timeline or you never get found out and yeah. therefore he's still in a position of authority and all these kind of things all the kind of you know little uh little elements like that and uh i mean we're still we were talking today about using photo montage and stuff like that because again one of my favorite uh, images from from hot war is the one there's a the the guy with the bandaged head completely bandaged head sitting on like a semi flooded stairs in an underground tunnel with a cigarette hanging out of his hand and that's a photo i took of the interior of Wrights Hill Artillery Fortress just outside Wellington in the mountains outside Wellington in New Zealand composited with a photo of me sitting on the stairs of my parents old house uh with bandages wow. around my head and everything and Paul made it into look like this injured dude in the London underground <laughs> uh kind of thing I love I mean that stuff is brilliant this is where I mean how you know Paul really brought the games alive he brought the setting a lot alive, uh, as it, as he did with Aesthetic as mm -hmm. well, and his, his imagery for that. So yeah, we're very. I think that having art as in world artifacts is is really important, and I, I can't think of a better team to be to be working on that because these guys will just. Oh, it's always the case. I'm kind of like you, know, Paul. Paul will say something like, "I it's not bad," and I look at it. And go, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's the most self-effacing man in Falkirk. <laughs> is it actually? I'll just as a slot of time out there. Is it worth mentioning actually who these people are? Because you've mentioned Paul and Gregor and Morgan and a bunch of other people, and obviously we've got some idea who they are between us. But maybe some of our listeners don't know who you're talking about or what their providence is, I guess, or or what their special skills are. Is it, do you guys want to quickly run through some of those people to give them some props and and let our listeners who they are and what they've done? Yeah, we probably should really, shouldn't we? I mean, yeah. as, as hilarious as it would be to go, no, keep them secret. <laughs> I'll just let's make it patrons only, so that you have to pay to find out. Yeah, get fill in the gaps for money. Paul is Paul Bourne, who was half of Contested Ground Studios, who published A State. You know, Paul and Malcolm were you're a bit of a duo, weren't you? Um, doing A State and and um, Hot War and Cold City and so on. And then I worked with Paul. For a long time at my old job at Cubicle 7, I recruited Paul for that. So Paul did all the graphic design work on the One Ring first edition and stuff like that and layout. I mean, I really think Paul is one of the, the best layout people in the business full stop. And yeah, he, he works with us now at Handiwork Games. Morg is Morgan Davey, who has done some really brilliant sort of small game stuff. Morg really came, he sort of... I sort of knew of Morg through uh, he was pretty instrumental, wasn't he, Malcolm, in the um, Edinburgh role-playing game yeah, club, yeah. Was it the Orc? But then he'd moved back to New Zealand, so I never hung out with Morg, but he was always on the periphery, or I was on the periphery of that social circle, really, more than uh, to get that accurate. Yeah, I'd seen a few things. Is it is the game? Is it called Don't Let Go? I always get the names of games wrong. It's like a problem. I think and, and this one-page RPG wrote that I just thought was really beautiful um and he's sort of come to my there and then yeah he got involved in a state didn't he and and now we're working on his five evil game that's like a, a sort of 5e hack that does horror really really well and then gregor is gregor hutton who did 316 carnage among the stars and a bunch of other so best friends which is one of my favorite role-playing games and remember tomorrow yeah the 
only role-playing and I, I this is the hill i will die on yeah here we go <laughs> only cyberpunk role-playing game there isn't another cyberpunk it's remember tomorrow is it we're not going to get into that argument but that's the hill i will die on what about Shadowrun, malcolm <laughs> well i'm yeah, on about a can of worms somewhere <laughs> This will be a follow-up episode, listeners, so you can change it for that later. Yeah, there's one called Cyberpunk, mate. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's it's wonderful. I mean, they're they're all kind of like, all these people are, are really good friends, but they're also brilliant. Hmm. You know, I got to, you know, because Morg's from New Zealand, I got to know him when he lived in Edinburgh, became good friends. Paul I've known for, for years. I mean, A-State came out of, like, him and me sitting in Paul's room me going, I've got an idea for this thing for a role-playing game. Paul's like, I don't really know what role-playing games are, but I can do some art for you if you want. And you know, and, and Gregor just I remember like the first time I met Gregor was when we were failing to launch A State at Compul- the Compulsion Convention in Edinburgh. When we're like, yeah, we'll have it done. No, we've not got it done. Um and just Gregor came up and he was so interested and friendly, and it was just like, wow, what a nice guy. You know, uh, and then it just <laughs> snowballed from there. You know, uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, brilliant. You know, a great bunch of people to work with. Yeah, Gregor amuses me because I don't see him for years at a time. And when I do, he talks to me like I've just stepped outside for a minute and come back in. It's like the conversation just, you know, picks up straight away. Like I've, yeah. It's man, the man is one of the great raconteurs. <laughs> he definitely is. He's the, he's the game. He's the gaming Peter Ustinov, really, I think, is, you know. <laughs> Here's a reference that the kids will get. All the kids are into Peter Houston. Well, that, that happily segues me back into stuff. Like you mentioned the Profimo affair there, and, and that's something that I think even as a, a kid I was sort of aware of, but it wasn't my time because it was in the 60s and I was born in the 70s. So it was a little bit away from me, but I kind of knew of it and aware of it. And maybe newer people won't be. Like, you know, there's a lot of people playing DD and stuff now, like the majority are in the 20s and stuff like that. So there's a new breed of people are going to come in and start playing other role-playing games as well. And you've mentioned your academic link and stuff like that and getting history out there, but with the montages of photos and other stuff, the actual historical element of these games, Cult City and Art War, is not going to be obviously real history. It's like an old history or you know, a progression on based on history. So how do you reconcile getting out some historical information to people and making it um, intriguing and entertaining and drawing them in? Because it might be from a period that was well before they were born. While also, also you know, doing the sort of like twist to it and making it different. How do you get the the truth to them while also delivering an alternative version of facts, if you will? If yeah. that's not too heavy a question. No, I mean the thing is, they are. I mean, they are essentially fantasies. Fantasy in the broadest sense. Fantasies on the Cold War. And and therefore, one of the things that we are talking a lot about is how do we communicate historical, actual historical information. So if we're mentioning people, places, events, themes, ideas, concepts, ideologies, how do we communicate that to a reader who doesn't want to read, perhaps, a kind of heavyweight academic text on the on Cold War history? How do we communicate that in a light-touch way through the use of sidebars of footnotes, through in-game artefacts, how can we make this not a textbook? Because it's, the, I mean, the fundamental purpose is to be a game book. We want mm-hmm. people to play these games and enjoy them. And it's the fantastical element that is core to it. But Johnny and I have been talking an awful lot about how exactly we are going to communicate often very complicated history 
through these through these game texts in a way that is light touch. And I think, I mean, a good touchstone for that is the way that, you know, that Beowulf, you know, handiwork games kind of big, you know, I think it's the Beowulf is handiwork games banner title. Uh, I think the way that that communicates an often complex and misunderstood history is, is kind of useful. I think Johnny can probably speak to that a bit more than I can. You know, I was thinking you were speaking something, we, we, we're talking a lot about this stuff in part as well, because we're recording me and Malcolm have done a talk, as as we mentioned earlier on, twice now about stream games and games in history. And it's a real passion, I think, for both of us using historical settings and what that's all about. Core part of that is just sheer enthusiasm, actually, for, you know, the stuff Malcolm knows about the Cold War. That's like really amazing stuff. We were talking this afternoon. We recorded some stuff this afternoon. And it's quite like. I feel like a, a sort of listener to the show while Malcolm's talking, you know, where you just go, this stuff's amazing. You know, you go, yeah, we should make a game about this. Good news, we are. You're already <laughs> up to your eyeballs in it. But it, yeah, presenting information in an engaging way that, that is just absolutely powered by enthusiasm for the period and enthusiasm for the research. And we're very, very keen on on doing that research. Often talk about we the reason you don't have where we can present a sort of uh i don't want to say in the sense of reduced but a sort of boiled down essence of a period that, that could inspire people to read more if they want to but it's still mm -hmm. really really playable without doing that we present you the stuff you need to gain and then if you want to know more if you want to make it more kind of um accurate or more uh nuanced or more granular if you like you, the reading will slot in you know i think that's something we did pretty well with beowulf is like you don't need to you could just just watch vikings or something you could play an enjoyable game of beowulf but if you want to go and read up more stuff you know you can slot it in what is there for for you to make use of you the effort you in will be rewarded you know but but at the bottom line it's just enthusiasm for the period mm -hmm. i think because it is yeah. really exciting and engaging and amazing, you know. And it's that kind of, it's getting across in a way. It's that the enthusiasm really matters, and it's things like so. Say for you know, this cold, cold city, you know, getting across to people who are playing this game. Okay, so there, the, there's the complexity of the post-war division of Germany, blah 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 blah. You know, this kind of thing. Okay, right. Okay. Maybe the complexity of that is something you don't need to know. But here's what you do need to know. And here's how it can make your game more exciting. Here's how you can use this historical information to make your game go, oh, this is happening in this sector of the city when the French are doing this over here and all the kind of, and this is the tensions that are taking place and this is where things collide and intersect and interact and here's the different kind of cultural exchanges that are happening and everything. I'm trying to condense that down and say, look, this isn't dry historical information. This is stuff you can bring into a game as a player or as a GM, and it's going to make your game exciting and engaging. And you know that that's the, that's the important thing for us. I think. Sorry, I'm clapping my hands together. I'm probably creating a lot of noise on the soundtrack. <laughs> I hope the sound gets on things over there. But yeah, no, I mean, clapping with enthusiasm—that's what I want to see from my game designers. And yeah, you're you're run after my own heart. That's gameable content. Um, there's a, another couple of games i'm not mentioned to say the blushes but like the just deep in their own mythology but like they've even said like one of the the creative 
uh, coordinators was on the podcast recently saying, oh, yeah, we tried to make it like a historical text. It's like, I don't, I don't want a historical text. That's like the, or if I do, I'll read a historical text. I don't want my games to be like that. But what I want from my games is the gameable content. Yeah. What's, what am I going to use in my session? What am I going to inspire my players with? What, what nuggets can I drop out that are going to get people thrilled or spark some of their own imagination? I don't want to have to read the text to pull out that stuff to then be able to deliver to people. I want it to be there on the page to just, fucking just go, you know. It was something we learned really well on the One Ring first edition in that if you give, there's a certain type of writer who knows Tolkien well enough to work on it, but kind of really wants to put their stamp on the setting. And you have to be really careful with that. Or they want to deal with stuff outside the license, or they want to talk about that. Basically, there was a rule of thumb that don't be talking about stuff that the players will never see because really it becomes. Who cares? Who cares about this? Or, or, or not? It, it's not even who cares. It might be engagingly written, but it's completely useless to the GM. And the poor GM is trying to read, say, an adventure and get what they need to run it. And sort of two page. I mean, I mean, gosh, when I was doing an editorial function as part of my job there, you would just be red penning pages and pages. You go, this is never. When does this appear at the table? <laughs> never, yeah. unless unless an NPC sort of drops out the sky and goes. I'm going to tell you a story which would be so boring at the yeah. table. Two thousand years ago, <laughs> yeah, we've all been in them games where you're like, "This is great. Can you just go and write the novel you obviously want to write as GM?" Because we just want to like make a decision and talk a bit, you know, and do stuff. So yeah, I think I think we're all pretty, you know, keyed into that. That that it's got to be gameable stuff what does it do at the table is mm. really important and what situations i mean when i'm designing i often use this reverse scripting method where you you pick the big moments that you want players to experience and then you work you retroactively get them there or provide a lot of different ways to get there um so that that's the focus of it rather than trying to tell a clever story or i mean i can't stand i was reading the other some but i practically threw it across the room God, quite opinionated, aren't I? I play a nice person online, but I'm actually really horrible. I can't. Luckily, I can't remember what it was, but it was just you know big fantasy setting. It was just nonsense. You know, what I mean, we just go, what is any of this? Could this relate to anything? I can't fix any of this setting information in my mind because it's just made up. Do you know what I mean? It's pure yeah. fiction, and I just I don't care. You've not made me care, and I suppose knowing mm. that you have those experiences, like you've got to make people care, and you've got to give them their way into it so that they're thinking oh i know what I, my character or i can see a character i that i would like to play that would have this situation going on then i think that's you know you're a good way there but oh, i think I got all excited for a minute <laughs> written fiction is actually i find is good because i mean i spend my kind of like you know a good chunk of my day writing academic articles and all that kind of thing and that's that's the opposite of what i want to do in in games while imparting historical information. And I was talking to my wife, Jackie, and I were talking, we both kind of like enjoy detective novels. And we were talking about the difference between, neither of us had read any Agatha Christie before, weirdly enough, but we're big, huge fans of Georges Simenon, the Maigret and, and all that kind of stuff, the classic 75 Maigret novels that Simenon wrote. And Agatha Christie can do a paragraph of description and you have no idea what the place is like. Right. Simenon can have one sentence, and it's a short sentence, about a bar 
in a back street of Paris or so anywhere, and you just you immediately get it. You know mm-hmm. he has that incredible ability as a writer to encapsulate a sense of of place and of people. You get characters, one sentence, that's it, and you know what they're like. Whereas, don't you deference to those out there who may be fans of Agatha, Agatha Christie, she's a terrible writer. So that's, I think, the kind of things taking influence from the likes of, you know, fiction writers like Simenon, who had that, that, that ability to capture place and people mm. very, very succinctly, and their significance in terms of, you know, maybe an ongoing story. That kind, that kind of stuff is is hugely helpful. Yeah, I've had books recently that I'm just a bit chucked across the room because I'm like, stop telling me this <laughs> stuff. Peter F. Hamilton is the worst for that. Isn't it funny when you when you like I I don't know there's so many things we're supposed to have read and you know like you were saying Malcolm that you'd never read any Agatha Christie and I remember it's where you find I'd never read any say Hemingway right and I read you know pick for whom the bell tolls and mm. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant I've always been a fan of sort of Cormac McCarthy and that kind of thing and I you know you can mm. see a sort of through line there. Um, and you just go, this is amazing, or Kurt Vonnegut or something like that. And you just go, if if I'd have read Vonnegut when I was 18, I never been an artist. I would have been a writer. I was always caught between the two things. I never would have, I wouldn't have bothered. I would have just written to to because yeah, what's uh, Slaughterhouse and all that? It's just you got I wanted to write this book. You know, I'm not suggesting in any way I could have written come any it, but it just totally inspires you. And then you read something else that's supposed to be really good and you go, this is absolute rubbish. I mean, it's all taste. Good point. Uh, yeah. Gar Hanahan will be cursing me. Graham Green, I read at the urging of, of Gar Hanahan. I, I just not for me. Thank you very much. What's going on? I, I really love Graham Green stuff. I mean, if you, if you, yeah. if you can cope with like the, the massive Catholic guilt that accompanies all. Uh, maybe that you know. Maybe you know. Green appeals to certain people. Oh, I love Green. Green. Yeah, no, I don't get. But, but again, it's not like because it's terrible. I just it's not for me. Thank. Yeah, 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 yeah. Doesn't you know? Doesn't flip my switch. So I'm just crooking the screaming back towards the gaming side of things, if, if possible. Read a book, nerds. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, <laughs> yeah. but only the right books. There's wrong yeah, the books. Right got the ones, not Green. green but, yeah. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> sorry, everyone. That, that that's fine um i guess one of the things to touch on we live in a polarized world i might be taking us away from gaming here i might be breaking my own rules but there's there's potential for people to take the wrong things the wrong lessons from history history or the long things from books speaking to meg and vince baker a while back they were saying you know they'll, they'll give their power by the pocket license just about anyone as long as you don't valorize fascism which is a good rule of thumb to start with but given the sort of periods that we talking about and the the possible factors that could be involved uh, are there any thoughts around that and, and guidance or how you present things so that people don't i don't know look at say post-war berlin and think about oh, what about a revival of the nazis and there's perhaps there's a, a still a nazi scientist who's running around and then perhaps going the wrong direction looking at it politically rather than sticking to the more fun supernatural or other aspects am i making sense mm-hmm. yeah i i don't mind i've played in games of Cold City where... No, so because this links back to the actual history. If we look at Berlin in 1950, there are still... Denazification wasn't a full-blooded thing. No. There were still the roots of the the entire West German intelligence service, what becomes the BND, the Galen Org originally, is Nazis. 
Weinhard Galen was the the head of Fremde here at Ost, Eastern Front Intelligence. And he came to the Americans and said, I've got this huge stash of intelligence and I've got all these uh, informants in what is now the Eastern Bloc. How's about not beheading me for, for you know, being, you know, Cozied up with the Nazis. There was loads of Nazis in for ex-Nazis at various levels in positions of authority in both on both sides of the the divide. It's I mean I don't you know this is what I think it's not as simple as that. But what comes down to if you if you've got an ex-Nazi scientist as a kind of you know antagonist figure in your game, they're the bad guy. Mm. At no point I was if you kind of look back at Cold City very early on in the game. There's a very clear bit that Nazism, the excesses and atrocities and awfulness of Nazism will not be valorized or glorified. They're not something to be, they're not a joke. The fictional elements, supernatural elements should not be used as an excuse for human atrocity and human brutality. So right. there's none of this kind of like, oh, actually, it, the, the Holocaust was caused by you know demons influencing the nazis no 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 no. we're not having that right so but this is part of the imparting of history and part of the importance of, of understanding history yeah agreed no, that's just wanted to clear it up so it's worth mentioning but i mean there's a, if i can just kind of like there's another 30 seconds on this go for it <laughs> there's that difficult thing and i don't really have time to talk about this about where people go well were the soviets not as bad as the nazis and it's that kind of reductive thing about history of trying to reduce everything to a balance sheet of, well, we can quantify badness here and quantify badness here and decide who's the worst. Hmm. It's not a top trumps, is it? That's a mugs game. That's not, not the job of a historian. Yeah, quite right. I, I go to Berlin quite a bit. Usually there's a happy point to go somewhere else, but there's loads of bits in Berlin just looking around it that, and I still think to this day when I go and look at something new, like, this would be great cold city stuff. There's like there's a, um there'll be a, um a new band station or something like that you'll go in and it'll still be these horrible like avocado tiles used to get in bathrooms in the 1960s or something. But they're, they're that it's all done out in that the station names all in like this heavy gothic font that you can imagine from you know maybe the 40s or something even the 30s uh, or you know stuff like one of the flak towers they still up from the Second World War. But you, you kind of like go around the half demolished flak tower and think what. Could, but what would this be in the fifties? Mm. Or you know, you know, there's there's tons of stuff like that. I mean, have you guys thought about doing a little field trip to to Germany and having taken your cameras and just going around and like capturing some stuff? Or, or is is Google sufficient for that? I don't know whether what handiwork budget is like for, for field trips. Johnny, is that uh, is that expensive? <laughs> well, 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 we'll just mostly be relying on the fact Mountain goes there for work. You know, so we'll just. Uh rely on that i think that'll do <laughs> yeah i've do. last two years running i've been on helping to lead student field trips to berlin as part of an international fieldwork module and yeah i do a kind of little as part of it do a kind of cold war walking tour hmm. of, of central berlin so yeah it's a wonderful I, berlin is one of the great european cities it's a, an amazing place i love visiting berlin Unfortunately, I've not. When I've been there for the past couple of times, it's not been with Cold City in mind. And if I was there now, I'd be kind of doing a lot more photography and all that kind of thing. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not. I'm not going on the the one this year because I think three years in a row would be uh, a bit much. So probably we just need to do a little bit. I think possibly on hot water to sort of like expand on that a little bit more. What the setting is like, and it's kind of it's possible. Like what you say, it's one of those where if everybody worked together, things would be okay. But people don't work together. So, did you case give us a little bit more about 
what's different about this 60s London compared to how it actually was? The setting of Hot War stems from my, as a teenager and in my 20s, playing Twilight 2000. Right. And a reaction to that kind of militarised, ultra-masculine vision of post-apocalyptic role-playing. So again, with its focus on relationships and people and their actions within uh, the setting, that's the important thing to me. In terms of the setting itself, I mean, it takes as its central conceit that the Cuban Missile Crisis went wrong, global thermonuclear war was launched, but it was also accompanied by the slightly weirder aspects of the stuff that was uncovered in Cold City. The, 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 the Britain, the United States, the Soviet Union, France, they're all using this stuff just like everyone's got nuclear weapons. Well, France France just has nuclear weapons at this point in time. First test in 1960. And there's a slight conceit, okay, that the Soviet nuclear strikes kind of pepper around the edges of London because I wanted to maintain, you know, London is ruined, there's fighting in it because the Soviets invade, da-da-da-da-da, but I wanted to maintain it as there is a MacGuffin there that, oh, yeah, their bombers went a bit wrong and all that kind of thing. So it's very much located in in London and the southeast. There's very little in the setting about what the rest of the UK is is like. And it's, it's pure, I mean, it's creating this kind of ruined environment where there is a government that because of wartime because of uh, deprivation because of political inclination is turning towards fascism that refugees from the continent are being shoved into camps on the the english coast and the the characters are part of this unit who are set up to deal with the weirder manifestations of devastation and deprivation and war but they are also being used politically and they're using the organisation politically, and it's a, you know it's a lot of politicking and backstabbing. Does that does that capture hot war? Too? What does hot war mean to you? Actually, what is your take on it? Yeah, it's, it's that it's the tug and pull of different different agendas, and it might be within the same character of a factional and a personal agenda, mm. and they could be at odds with each other. One might be to go and find a certain spy as your factional agenda, and the the person won't be like the spies you want to make Jeff, and you need to like make sure he gets out of there without the authorities getting hold of him. And you're kind of in a position where there's been three other players and they've all got agendas as well, which may or may not until that twig with yours. And then there'll be NPCs as well that have three-way splits with you. So it's a way of lots of interactions. And it's it enables you to have what's the way of putting it? Like games like Game of Thrones, for example. I think a great system for Game of Thrones will be the Hot War system because it handles hidden agendas and things very well. Mm. And it's good for that sort of game. The, the setting, I've done it from like Scott, when he runs it, does very low-level ones. It can just be kitchen sink drama. So you're playing a family of four people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was like in the Civil Liberation Army and the guys in the trade unions and this, that, and the other. Uh, all the way up to like a political drama and trying to work out, you know, the, the opening scene is Profumo's there on the on the slab with his, cuff, you know, the big white set uh, autopsy scar. And that, yeah. that's where the session starts. You're trying to work out what's happened and that kind yeah. of thing. And at least two people around the table know what's happened because they're involved with it and well, whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's a way of... Um, Enabling PvP, but without it being, it's more character versus character, but the players are in on the joke, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the things that's definitely staying in in Hot Water and Cold City is the idea of you can play a kind of closed or open game, as we 
termed them that you can have the closed game where no one knows, no one shares secrets. It's a more traditional kind of thing, like, oh, you know, my halfling, halfling thief is going to steal everyone's gold, but I'm not going to tell anyone that. Or you can have your open game where everyone actually knows what the agendas are, the secrets are out there. And we all, this is, that's the way I preferred playing it was you can really create interesting dynamic stories by bringing all this in and characters will do something that manipulate other agendas and all these kind of things and everything. For listeners who who are not seeing the video of this, I am waving my arms about maniacally like a demented Tony Blair. That's the second time today I've said something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's I'm I'm tremendously excited that, that Johnny's kind of offered the opportunity to bring these games back. I think it's uh, it's really exciting. Quite weird that, isn't it? <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, what a strange thing. But yeah, good. It's just it's just rolled in that direction, doesn't it? It just makes sense. It really makes sense to do it. And I think they're really great games. And I think, you know, we've got, we're in the right place to do it, I think, you know. Yeah. And, and it's and do it really well. There's also a kind of timing thing that, and I suppose this reflects on kind of like a lot of kind of unf- unfortunate global situation. But I used to, I always did a thing when I was teaching about the Cold War. I would ask students what their, I'd have four like big fears. And I think it was like climate change, nuclear war, political slash religious extremism. I can't remember what the fourth one was. I'd always have a fourth one. I'd ask them to stand in a corner next to the one that they were most worried about. And for, when, when I started teaching like US history in like 2009, it was, new, it was climate change. Climate change was the one that people always go to. There's been a really interesting change over the past few years. There's been a lot more interest in and concern about nuclear weapons and the ramifications of nuclear weapons. This, I mean, this is anecdotes. It's not data. It's just my interactions with students in a classroom situation. But so I think an interest in, and there's a lot more student interest, and I also think popular interest in the Cold War period as well. We're seeing a transition, certainly amongst young people, from what are you interested in? Nazis to what are you interested in? Cold War. Cold War is becoming a, f- a field of a really expanding uh, popular popular interest. I could be talking bollocks here, but you know. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, the other good thing, that, that sort of like the 60s setting gives you, I don't know, things like uh, Michael Caine and Get Carter or that kind of, there's all kinds of styling or it crest files maybe, or there's, there's different uh, touch points that people will have mm. that can bring to it. Uh, and I like the fact there's you know there's all these different factions like the government and the army and the whatever and but they've all got their own take. It's not it's not like the military. You think of the army as the army, but actually they've got their own plans going on. Or the navy's really strong because they've got a nuclear submarine and that gives power to the city. So that's that's why they're strong. You would think the navy would be rubbish in London, but actually they've got this asset which makes them a force, if you will. Yeah, all kinds of interesting spins on things. If you like old history. Or be able to play around with stuff like that, then I think it's um it's a, it's a good pit to kind of like mix around with and try different stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And hopefully, I mean, as as we said, the kind of the the light touch way that we're aiming to kind of bring in the actual history to help inform people's games in a kind of really dynamic and interesting way. Hopefully, and as I said, you know, Beowulf does that really well. Uh, Mask witches, you know, which you know is deals with much deeper history. Actually, I think does a lot to impart a sense of you know a sense of you know place and ideas and i know you know johnny's always you know has done an immense he always does the background research 
uh, into the historical research and really your kind of heavy heavy lifting. It's obsessively so. Obsessively, yeah. Well, dozens and dozens of books get bought. You know, my wife yeah. is like rolling her eyes. You know, how many books about them? I don't have space for books anymore. I've taken so many books back into my office in the university. I now don't have space in my office in the university for all the books. And an ongoing battle with facilities and maintenance to see if I can get more bookshelves put up. <laughs> I think, you know, when you mentioned mass witches and stuff, the, where that really is a really strong example of a thing is because it's quite a... I really wanted to impart in that game what an alien world mm. that is, that period, that, that sort of Middle Stone Age, Mesolithic period, where there's no indoors, right? There's no indoors. There's no... There's not boundaries between because people are not doing agriculture, you know, things like fences, doors, buildings, as we understand them, do not exist. You know, at night it's dark, like because there's no indoors that you can light up and 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 so on. And you build, build, build on and, and sort of create this sort of psychological map of how people who ultimately are like us because we share, you know, physiology and so on, but are in this totally different set of circumstances and how they react to that and how they get on i think is so useful for a role-playing game or exciting for a role-playing game and of course you know hot walk cold city do those things as well you know it's like what if this was the situation you were in with this understanding of the world again a, a bit i love about beowulf is where you start to realize the early english or so-called anglo-saxons some of the things they couldn't do or didn't do we we think like they didn't um, throw pots you know, early the early sort of settlers in the country they didn't throw pots they didn't know how to make glass they ran out of gold when the roman gold runs out they run out of gold from making gold things they don't quite a, there's a way you can look at it which i think you can get away with in role-playing games you would want to do a lot more research if you were to sort of make these arguments as a as an academic but role-playing in a role-playing sense you know that's really cool there's this almost like there's a childlike element to that culture and the way their art is and so on but it's also quite heavy duty because they're the adults, you know. But yeah, again, back to mask witches. Nobody really knows anything, and the world is a terrifying place, you know. I think is is really really interesting stuff, you know. And I love all that. But it but it, yeah, it holds true for for cold city and hot war, you know. Psychological landscape is what I'm trying to talk about. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. Uh, there's other there's really trivial things as well. Like if you're playing hot war or cold city, you can't you can't Google stuff. You can't ring someone yeah. on the mobile phone to see where they are. You can ring their office and ask if they're there. But look, if they're, if they're out in the field or they've gone for a coffee, then unlucky. Like, there's, there's all kinds of things you don't think about in normal role-playing games that suddenly become a thing you've got to think about. See, how did we, when we were kids, right? Or I'd say kids, like you know, late teens or whatever, I used to arrange to meet friends in London by letter. How did that? <laughs> I used to phone at a time. And and arrange a time to me. I don't, but I can't remember it, which I think is really fascinating. I can't remember how it worked because now it's just your phone, isn't it? Your mobile phone. That's mm. it. You rely on that totally. But yeah, it's an interesting, different psychological perspective. You had to trust people that would up because there was no way to contact them if they weren't there. Yeah, exactly. So they had to turn up, or you had to just wait for as long as you waited, and then go home. <laughs> and that was it. Or there was a kind of general agreed everyone will always meet up at this place at this general time yeah. like so that you knew that oh at about eight o'clock on a friday night in calendar park everyone would gather outside the front of the big house to drink cider and that was 
it was just this you know, psychically agreed upon kind of like location and time. Well, while it sounds like just sort of, hey, remember Spangles type of talk, it, yeah. it is to do with games and it is to do with what we're talking about because what's the scenario in that? Like you talk about, you know, these people are gathering in a place. Yeah. How do it? how do they know and all that sort of stuff I think is really relevant to what we're talking about that, mm. that even in our youths things were so different and and why and material the way material culture oh god create there's brilliant but creating material worlds I've been reading that will just blow your mind about all that stuff in the past that, that the sort of material circumstances under which people live determine so much about psychology and so on and it's fascinating stuff and it is relevant to games which is like exciting i think lovely stuff well gentlemen i'm conscious of time mm-hmm. and although we could get into our book list when <laughs> <you> asked, <laughs> well two book lists one for the people that people shouldn't read and the rest of the country i just want to give you the opportunity johnny because we've, we've mm. uh, not really talked about other stuff you've mentioned a couple of games in there but what, what are you currently up to and what's on we've got quite a lot on the go at the moment we're in this weird almost like I, i've been calling it phase two but it's almost like i don't know what phase number is really phase three where we've got a lot of stuff in development right now so we've got 5e evil that is morgs really brilliant he's taken apart 5e and he sort of uses your expectations with me and malcolm have played this and he uses your expectations of how 5e works to sort of horrify you because things happen where you just go what hang on wait <laughs> and it's uh, really really good that that's in play test at the moment it's brilliant just yeah really good the, and no knowledge of 5e but I like i'm like oh i think how is that you know it's based in D. how is this going to work for a horror game oh my god it works really well it's really brilliant. clever uh, so we've got working on that we've got i'm just i've just announced today i'm going to redo as a fairly long-term project i'm going to redo mask witches because it originally used ai artwork from a, from an earlier phase of ai before we knew the things we know now and and we moved away from that quite a long time ago now but i think mask Witches is a really great little game and i don't want it to die with my lack of interest now in ai stuff it was great when it was new it was this new frontier and it was really weird and it was really i had some really interesting creative experiences working with it and that's all just sour as anything now and i'm not interested but you know but i want to you know I'm, while we're talking i'm sitting working on some paintings for that there's also the follow-up game mask Witches 2 which doesn't have a name yet properly i can't call it mask which is too electric, Boogaloo, too, the electric glue yeah not allowed the, to call it yeah. <laughs> uh, the other the other name was was uh bleep stonehenge it moves the time it moves the timeline forward a bit where the mask witches are no longer these sort of social workers that prevent the community falling into sort of the wrong ways of living you're actually just trying to destroy stonehenge because you hate uh agriculture so that's, there's, there's a lot of really troubling themes in that that are all having to be put together in the right way. Got more stuff coming for A-State. King Beowulf, we just finished this week, the Kickstarter for King Beowulf. That's kingdom stewardship for uh, Beowulf, where you get a kingdom, and it's really good. That's going to be great. All sorts, actually. This is, yeah, there's more stuff we haven't announced yet, which is all quite mad because we've got a lot on and it's all got to get done, but... Sounds like there's a lot, yeah, plenty yeah, to do. Oh God, we've yeah, we're we're working. I I can't. We haven't officially announced yet, but we're working on a really big project actually in in sort of weird the studio for a, for a game that that people will recognise, and we're we're just in the early stages. Of that, but that's pretty exciting stuff too. I mean, obviously, completely information free announcement there. There's a the thing with you know. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you heard the complete. It's, it's Oppenheimer, the role playing game. <laughs> 
but I'll be an Oppenheimer crossover again. Yeah, yeah, lovely, excellent. Well, thanks very much for coming on, guys. Like, I, I'm aware that some of what we talked about got quite deep and nerdy, and probably didn't talk about the game as much as new people might want to hear about. But happily, both my guests this week are doing their own video log series, so you can go yeah. to the Handiwork site and check out a, a steady drip feed of information and get more news on both games, really, Cold City and Hot War, which I highly recommend to all of my listeners. So it just remains to say thanks very much for coming on, guys. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for inviting us on. It's been great. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Yeah, great to talk to you again after so long. Yeah, quite. And uh, thanks, of course, as always, to all our patrons, people who share the podcast, tell, tell the people about it, like, subscribe, all the other stuff. Thanks for your support, and I shall see you hopefully with Ben next time on What Would the Spot Party Do?